I'd like to read a couple of verses from the 10th chapter of Deuteronomy. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him and cling to Him, and you shall swear by His name. He is your praise, He is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. Father, we thank You that You are the great and awesome God, and You are our praise as we lift our hearts to You today, acknowledging that You are our King, You are our Redeemer, You are the one who has lifted us out of the miry clay and placed our feet on the solid rock. And Lord, I pray that no matter what the trials and tribulations may be that come into our lives, that our faith in you will not waver but grow stronger. And Lord, as we study your word, I pray that it will be woven into the very core of our being and that we will respond to all the exigencies of life from the word itself. Father, bless us here this hour in our study, and I pray for our Sunday school, for each of the classes, adults, college, high school, junior high, elementary classes, Lord, that you will be with each one today on this campus, and that you'll glorify your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Somewhere around 1000 B.C., which of course we have a hard time relating to since that was 3,000 years ago. And some of us are getting to the point where we have a hard time relating to three hours ago, let alone 3,000 years ago. About that time, 3,000 years ago, Saul, Israel's first king, was killed by the neighboring peoples here, the Philistines, who lived along the coast here on the plain in a battle. It was fought up here on Mount Gilboa, which lies approximately like this here. Saul had been a man who had been anointed by God to be king over Israel, and he had, in effect, created the monarchy in Israel. Everything he did set the precedent. It's sort of like when George Washington was elected to be the first president of the United States. Everything he did was a precedent, right? And, and he's the one who pretty much charted the course. In fact, he's the one who set the concept that two terms is enough for anybody to be in office. And that, that was maintained until Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected to his third term. It's not in the Constitution, or it wasn't at least, uh, until after that, that it was put in, in the Constitution that two terms would be the limit. And so you have Saul setting all the precedents, uh, establishing a capital, uh, having a standing army, and, and uh, he is also responsible for more or less securing these borders. The red lines indicate approximately the borders of the kingdom of Saul. And during his time, he was an effective commander-in-chief. However, when he died, the question of succession consumed the land. God had made it clear as, as he spoke through the last of the judges, a man by the name of Samuel, that David was to be Saul's successor. And probably at the time of Saul's death, the majority of the Israelites would have been willing to accept the coronation of David as king. However, it didn't happen immediately because Saul had chosen his first cousin by the name of Abner to be his commander-in-chief, commander of his army. And somehow Abner survived the great battle on Mount Gilboa. 
And even though Jonathan, the heir apparent, and two other brothers, sons of Saul, had all been killed on Mount Gilboa, one son remained. And that, of course, is the one named Ishbosheth. And obviously, Abner was not willing to allow the throne to slip out of the hands of the family. <laughs> Uh, because Abner being first cousin uh, to Saul, they, they were close family members. And to keep the crown, the throne in the family, really was his purpose and his plan. And, and we'll see later on in the third chapter, he knew, he knew that God had ordained David to be the next king. It wasn't like, die. I didn't know about that. He knew because he even says it uh, himself later on. So it is his purpose to keep the crown in the family. And so what he did, as we studied last time, he spirited this last remaining son of Saul, a man by the name of Ishbosheth. He spirited him uh, across the Jordan River, away from the battle site here, out to a city called Maanaim. They, As I mentioned last time, they have it located out here, but the most, most would put it right about in there. The idea, of course, was to keep him safe from both David and, and from the Philistines. Now, apparently the elders of Israel, because later on, Abner's going to say, now you can do what you've always wanted to do and you can make David king. And, and so from that, we get a sense that maybe the elders of Israel actually wanted David to be king from the first. But when Abner proclaimed Ishbosheth to be king, they went along with this, possibly because they saw it maybe as an interim thing, or more likely they were simply afraid of Abner. Abner was a very strong and brusque man, and he was the commander of the remaining Israelite troops. Ishbosheth was a weak man, and because he was a weak man, Abner was able to, to use him as a puppet, kind of like a marionette, you know, and therefore whatever Abner wanted done is really what ultimately would be done. Judah had proclaimed David to be king, and since that was true, Abner had no choice but to challenge David for control of the land because there really wasn't any way for him to give up all this part of Israel to David. That's a big hunk of it. And so he decided that he would challenge David for the throne. In the first phase of the Civil War, which we studied last time, we saw that Abner was defeated and he fled back to Maanaim. But rather than seeing the mene mene Tiku Farson on the wall, you know, the handwriting on the wall and deciding, well, I better just give in because God's will is that David would be king. He continued to resist. But as we're going to see as we go through this passage this morning, he will finally yield, but it will be too late for him. And he will pay the ultimate price for having resisted the will of God. God, through the prophet Isaiah, would many, many years later speak these speak to Israel and say that God is a rock and they who resist him will be shattered on that rock. So let's look today at the actions of David and of Abner. Third chapter of 2 Samuel, reading the first five verses. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew steadily stronger but the house of, of Saul grew steadily weaker. Sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam the Jezreelitess. His second, Kiliab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. 
The third was Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggath, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Ab Abital. And the sixth, Ithrim, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David at Hebron. Abner and his Benjamite allies, you, might, you remember the last scene we saw, Abner and, and his men were standing on one hill and uh, Joab and his men were standing on another hill. The, the day was rapidly declining. It was very late in the afternoon. Evening was coming and they were on the very edge of the escarpment that drops down into the Jordan Valley. And there they'd had a conversation across the intervening space in which they had agreed to call off the fighting and to return home. And we remember the statistics that we read last time that Abner had lost 360 men in the fighting and Joab had lost only about 20 or so in the fighting. So it was obviously a defeat for Abner. And he had returned all the way back to Mayanaim that very night, arriving in, in the next morning. As a result, the Civil War did not end with the battle at the Pool of Gibeon. It would continue, unfortunately. The struggle would last for at least two more years until Ishbosheth would be killed. The scriptures clearly states that David ruled, ruled from Hebron for seven and one half years. The scriptures also tell us that Ishbosheth ruled for two years. So obviously there's a difference of five and a half years between the time that David ruled at Hebron and Ishbosheth ruled from Maanaim. And the five and a half year difference must have been found, first of all, in the possibility that Ishbosheth was crowned maybe a little bit later than David was. But more likely, it is found in the difference in the time from the time Ishbosheth was killed and the time that the rest of Israel finally got around to coronating David as king. And then the amount of time it would take for David to finally move from Hebron, which was his capital to capture Jerusalem and make it the capital of the whole land. Because you see the little red line around that. Jerusalem did not belong to Saul's Israel. Jerusalem was still a possession of the Jebusites and they had not healed to uh, Israel. Obviously being surrounded like that, they, they must have paid tribute, but they were not conquered. And so it would be up to David to capture the city. And of course it would be a, a wonderful choice because Jerusalem had not belonged to any of the tribes up to this point. And so it was sort of like making a, a, a city that had not had any uh, history of belonging to any of the tribes, the capital, and all could subscribe to that. What we discover in the first verse of this particular passage is a political statement that reflected a spiritual truth. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But the house of David grew stronger and the house of Ishbosheth grew weaker, the verse tells us. As the civil war, which of course is the worst kind of war, as we know from our own history, uh, progressed, David's claim grew stronger. More and more subscribed to the leadership of David. He was obviously a much stronger and more viable candidate for the throne, while Ishbosheth, who was viewed himself as a weak man, and, and everybody knew that Abner was the real power behind Ishbosheth. But these two men, Abner and Ishbosheth, 
were doomed to fail because they were resisting the revealed will of God. Through the great prophet Samuel, as I noted uh, a few moments ago, God had himself sovereignly chosen and anointed the youngest son of Jesse, a man by the name of David, to be the successor to Saul. And we noted as we studied that particular passage back last year that God just simply doesn't pick the person that, that we would most likely pick. I don't know what that tells us about our selection, for example, of presidents and, and governors and so forth, but, but you know, uh, Saul sort of looked like the kind of person who ought to be king, but David? He was the youngest of eight brothers. His older brothers were strong and tall and regal, but David was a little kid or a relatively young, young man. And yet this was God's choice. And the scripture tells us because God looks in the heart and not on the outward appearance. Like all of those throughout history, and you can go through the pages of scripture and through the pages of history outside of scripture, and you discover that those who have rejected the word of God and had pitted themselves in their flesh against the Almighty have, of course, come to ruin. Regardless of the apparent flaws in the character of this man, David, and as we're going to go into even look at this passage here this morning and other passages that we know of, David had his flaws. But in spite of those flaws, David represents the kingdom of God. And David was guided by the Holy Spirit. Abner, on the other hand, represents the kingdom of this world and is guided by his own flesh. This is sort of like the contrast that St. Augustine gives in his City of God when he talks about the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man, the one being empowered by the Spirit of God and the other being empowered by the Spirit of Satan. I put Romans 8 on your outline there, or at least I think I did, because this is a passage which I think relates to this and, and is very instructive for us at all times. In Romans 8, I'd like to read uh, verses 5 through 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That, of course, is a powerful commentary on the, on the passage that we're looking at because Abner was functioning in the flesh. David was functioning in the spirit, in the basic conflict that we're dealing with here. And as we translate that into our day, we can see it, I think, fairly clearly. Because we live in a world where most people are functioning in the flesh and they're dying in the flesh. Their goals are things of the flesh. And yet the church of the living God, as it maintains its focus on the spirit of God, is the light and salt of the earth. Now, that is not without flaw, of course, even as David was not without flaw. Uh, the church is, you know, it's the bride of Christ, but it's not yet without any spot, spot in blemish. It is, of course, by the fact that the blood of Christ covers all sin, but the church continues to uh, have its hiccups along the way, you might say, to say the least. 
But it applies to us in daily walk as well. Because we who are called of God and, and, and ordained of God and who are cleansed by the Spirit of God, by the blood of Christ, we still walk this world. And the world, the flesh, and the devil are still our enemies. And there are times when our flesh rises up and allies itself with the world and the devil, and, and we sin. But of course, our, our goal, our, our desire, hopefully, is that we make it right with God quickly and, and immediately and, and, ha and have the blood of Christ to cleanse us again and wash away the iniquity of our lives because the scripture says that the mindset upon the flesh cannot do the will of God. So our mindset needs to be on God. And if we find ourselves David, we find some clearly displayed in the passage we read here this morning, do we not? In the seven and a half years that he reigned at Hebron, six sons were born to David. Now there's no real big issue with that except each was born of a different wife. Ahinoam and Abigail, whom David had brought with him to Hebron from Ziklag, bore him his first two sons. But what we describe and uh, read in this passage is that while he was ruling in Hebron, David apparently married four other women, Maacah, Haggith, Abital, and Eglah. And each of them bore David a son. He was a busy man, obviously. Now, we don't know the origin of three of those women. Scripture doesn't tell us uh, where Haggath or Abital or Eglah came from, but it does tell us something about Maacah. We're told there that she was the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. Geshur was an Aramean kingdom. So what has David done here already? He has already used marriage to create a political alliance. This is something that Solomon will do on a grand scale. It's like every treaty was sealed with a marriage to the daughter of, of whoever, uh, you know, the king is of the kingdom that the treaty was made with. And so David is here setting the precedent. I mean, David already has at least three wives before he marries, I mean, at least two wives before he marries Maacah. And yet he, he makes this marriage for obvious political reasons. Because you don't just run into the daughter of Maacah walking around the streets of Hebron. You know, what is the daughter of the king of a distant kingdom going to be doing walking around in Hebron? He's not. She's not. So obviously there was political contact there and some kind of an agreement was made. Now David had some <laughs> dreams for his sons apparently and they may be revealed uh, in the hopeful names that he gave to each of his sons. Amnon means faithful, which unfortunately he will not be. Kiliab means father's image, which apparently is a nickname. Because if you go to, we won't, but if you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 3, we discover that the, the son's name is Daniel, not Kiliab. And Jan Daniel, of course, means God is my judge. But, but Kiliab was applied to this man because most commentators believe he apparently was the spitting image of his father. He must have looked so much like his father that he was called Kiliab, father's image. Absalom means my God is peace. My father is peace, actually, but the father is capitalized, implying God. Adonijah means the Lord is Yahweh. What a name, huh? Adonijah. And Shephatiah meant the Lord judges. 
you see kind of the root of shofat in there. And then Ithrim meant, my kinsman, capital K, meaning God, is abundance. So, so David gave good names to his sons, certainly hoping that they would one day live up to these names, which most of them will not. <coughs> Two of his sons will actually rebel against him. Well, with six wives, it seems, I think, fairly clear that David had a woman problem. I don't mean that the women were problems. I, think, I mean that he had a problem relative to them. Now, God had made it very clear from the very beginning when he discussed these issues with Adam and Eve, and we gave Adam and Eve the command as to what they were to do, that his plan was one man marries one woman, and you have one husband and you have one wife, and that's the way it's supposed to be. God has never sanctioned plural marriages, and yet we do find them, don't we, in Scripture. What about Abraham? Abraham got things off to a bad start uh, in the beginning, did he not? Uh, married Sarah, that was perfectly all right. But then he took Hagar as a concubine, which, you know, the Scripture says, if you, if you go to bed with somebody, you're married with that person, so call them concubine, call them wife, whatever you want. They basically uh, hold the same standing. And then what about Jacob? You know, Jacob married two women, sisters, and then he took their handmaids, so he had two concubines, in effect four wives. And, and what did God say about Abraham? He says, you are my friend. And what did God say about Jacob? You are a prince. You are Israel. Well, you know, David says, well, Abraham's friend of God. He's got two wives. Uh, Jacob is, is a prince, and he's got four wives. Plus the fact he looked around and he could see that all the kings of the other kingdoms had harems. He didn't want to be left out. And so David found excuses to indulge his desires. God knew this would be a problem. I really cannot tolerate uh, every once in a while it pops up, if you ever read the religion page in the newspaper, some brilliant pastor around here comes on and says something about, you know, God doesn't really know the future. You know, he just kind of has a general idea. You know. God, of course, knew who would be the kings of Israel and who, what the problems would be of each and every king, including David and Solomon. And so God gave very, very clear teaching through Moses. I'd like to go back to that. We've looked at it before, but Deuteronomy chapter 17, reading at verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. Now, if that doesn't give us a really good idea that God knows the future, I don't know what else does. And you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set over as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. These, of course, were the temptations of the kings uh, throughout all of history to do these things. 
One of the things you discover if you ever spend some time looking at the royal houses of, of Europe and the rest of the world is that the kings almost always set themselves aside as not being under the laws or the mores or the customs or the traditions of their society and basically able to do whatever they wish. Have harems. It was like the Turkish sultan who had 300 in his harem. There were so many, uh, many of whom he never even saw. And, and of course to accumulate wealth for himself. There was a cardinal, hmm, no less, a cardinal of the church who was prime minister of France back in the 17th century who when he died had an estate worth one half billion dollars. Now where would a cardinal get that kind of money? <laughs> From the political power that he had. And so God knew that the kings of Israel would have this kind of temptation. And so he warned against it and commanded that they not follow the traditions of the neighboring nations. David was a man of God. Therefore, David knew the scripture. David knew this passage. I don't think David could say, oh, I never heard that passage before. I don't think so. Yet, we'll see as we go on that these six are not the end, right? Other wives and concubines will come in the days and years ahead. And certainly this was a great struggle for David and would result in him writing more than one psalm. <laughs> David and his progeny and his wives would pay a horrible price for David's failure in this area. And we will, of course, eventually get to these tragedies. And they were... They were as sad as any tragedy that comes along. Let's look, reading at uh, verse 6 of 2 Samuel 3. And it came about, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hands of David. Yet today you charge me with guilt concerning the woman. May God do so to Abner and more also, if, as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan even to Beersheba. And he could, not, could no longer answer Abner a word, because he was afraid of him. Then Abner sent messengers to David in his place, saying, Whose is the land? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing of you, namely... You shall not see my face unless you bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, to whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping as he went, and followed her as far as Bahurim. And Abner said to him, Return. So he returned. 
Notice the role that women continued to play in the midst of this civil war. Abner was acting as kingmaker here, and he was the power behind the throne of Israel. And he decided that because he had this position, he had the right to help himself to one of Saul's concubines, who in theory, of course, should have been transferred to Ishbosheth or set aside kind of like in a convent kind of situation. Either one or the other should have occurred. It seems that what we have here is Abner flaunting his power. I'm the power behind the throne here. I'm in effect king. And if I want this woman, I'll take this woman. So Ishbosheth, though, was offended by this. And he challenged Abner for his actions. And when he did, Abner goes ballistic, as we read in this passage. He accused Ishbosheth of speaking to him as if he were David's lackey. He says, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Abner then accused Ishbosheth of being a fool in questioning his right to this concubine. Who are you to question what I do? Is what Abner is saying. Because he says, it is by my grace that you're on this throne, and it's only because I have chosen to put you here that I haven't given you to David, so shut up. Who are you to talk to me that way? But Abner went further than that. Without any further argument, he swore to give, that he was going to give the throne to David. Who's behind this? <laughs> I wonder. Ishbosheth was so frightened by the rage of Abner that he froze and said nothing. What we've discovered here is that Abner is a man of his word, at this point at least, and he follows up in his proclamation. The first thing he does is send messengers to David saying, I'm offering to you, David, the throne of Israel, if you will make a covenant with me. Think about that for a minute now. If Abner is promising David something, but David must give him a covenant, what is Abner saying? He's saying, let's make a deal. And he's saying, I am somebody worthy to make a deal with. I am someone you must make a deal with. I think because the Civil War had not been going so well for Abner that he may have already thought about the possibility of switching sides before this ever came along. And that this was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back here that was the foolishness of Ishbosheth in daring to challenge the one who was the very source of Ishbosheth's position as king. That was the final straw for Abner. But what we discover here is a man of ambition. And this is highlighted by the opening question that he gives in his message. He sends these messengers to David. And the first thing these messengers are to say, whose is the land? The implication is, the land is mine, says Abner. He's undoubtedly implying that the power, he had the power to deliver Israel to David or not. So in effect, he's talking to David as if he were an equal. Okay, let's, let's talk one-on-one. -on -one. Not an inferior, but an equal. Here, make a covenant. You know, covenants are usually made between equals. Not always, of course. God has made many covenants, and there is no equal to him, of course. But... What are you saying? I am the true ruler of Israel. Oh, Ishbosheth has the throne. He has the name, but I am the power behind the throne. You will deal with me. He was implying, in addition, that David, that in this David is beholden to him and that he should make Abner a good offer. 
ah, if you do this for me, I will do this for you. And I think he was implying to David that I would like to be what I am now, commander-in-chief of the army of Israel. But David was not about to make that offer. Although after, a few event, after some event we'll read a little bit later in the chapter, he might have. But uh, at this point, he wasn't ready because his own nephew, held, Joab, held that particular position. And he was not going to kick Joab out to put Abner in. Well, David, I think, was elated by Abner's offer, but he was cautious. Is, is this real? Is this true? Uh, what, what is the catch here? And so he decided to test the genuineness of Abner's commitment to the process. So he agreed to the office, uh, offer on one contingency. When Abner showed up to make the covenant and for the transfer of power to be made, Officially, he was to bring David's first wife, Michael, with him. David had six wives. Did David need a seventh? Seven is a perfect number. Oh, yes, I forgot about that. <laughs> I, I think that's right, Ollie. <laughs> yeah, in the Old Testament. The perfect number of wives and husbands is one. <laughs> Whatever might have been his emotional attachment to Michael, what is David's primary motivation here? I think David's primary motivation is to re-establish his link to the house of Saul. This is Saul's daughter. To marry Saul's daughter, or to be married, he was already married to Saul, Saul's daughter, is to cause those who are so gung-ho that Saul's house must rule to say, well, Actually, this is Saul's daughter and David's married to her, so David should be okay. That maybe he was attempting to create a more general willingness within Israel to accept himself as king. David is capable of thinking in ways that are human, manipulating things in ways that are human. As it's going to turn out, it isn't going to be so good for David to have Michael back in his possession. Well, to make this happen, to see to it that what David was requiring happened, David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, and he demanded of Ishbosheth that he return his wife to him. Well, Ishbosheth is cowed by Abner, and so he knows this is what Abner wants, and probably Abner is behind the scene there saying, get him, get her. Uh, he orders that Michael be taken from Paltiel, the man to whom she has been married now for. We don't know how many years, but at least 10, probably at least 10 years, she's been married to Paltiel. Now remember what happened was when, when David escaped from Saul way back in the beginning after the marriage had been contracted and David fled into the wilderness, Saul just simply took Michael and gave her to this man Paltiel. For whatever reason, the scripture doesn't tell us. Why Paltiel? He must have been somebody who was a, a supporter of Saul, somebody that Saul owed something to, and so he married his daughter. You just don't marry, kings just don't marry their daughters to any old body. So there had to be a good reason, even though the scripture doesn't give us the details. Well, this was, of course, a shock to both Michael and Paltiel when the orders came that, Pal that Michael was going to have to return to David, and so Paltiel goes along. <laughs> oh, no, she's my wife. Don't take her away from me. And, 
And Abner got tired of his crying and moaning and said, go home. You know, you're bugging me. And so we sent him home. Paltiel, we know from another scripture, was from a, a town named Galim. Now, Galim's location is not certain, but it was somewhere north of Gibeah in the tribal area of Benjamin. So it's possible that Paltiel was even of the, I mean, certain was of the tribe of, of Saul, may even have been of the extended clan. We do not know. And it's at Barim that, the, that Paltiel is told to go home. Well, we don't really know where Barim was either, but it was apparently north of Jerusalem a little ways. So it's, it's, it's likely that, they, that Paltiel hadn't traveled more than maybe five miles with his wife and, you know, moaning, bemoaning his loss when Abner finally told him to go home. I think we might be tempted to sympathize with Paltiel. After all, his wife is being taken away from him, his wife of maybe 10 years. Maybe there were children. We, we are not told if children were involved. But we have to look at it from the other perspective. He knew, he knew when Saul took Michael from David that he was being given another man's wife. And so he knew that what he was doing was not correct before God as well as in their own society. And so what we can see here overarching this is whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And so it would be for Paltiel, so it would be for Michael, and so it would be for David too. Later he's going to be very, very sorry that he brought Michael back into his household because she will embarrass him uh, very much and turn against him uh, in his hour of, of glory and, and, and praise to, to his God. So whatever was Michael's heart thoughts about all of this, well, I think what we'll have to do is uh, continue on from verse 17 uh, next week and uh, find out the tragedy that comes to this man, Abner. Uh, even though he's, he's now doing what is right, it's too late. He's past the, the place of no return, you might say, and he will pay tragically for his resistance to God's will.